the title for this morning's sermon, as we continue on this idea, this topic of stewardship, um, is marriage. And uh, again, I, I said for Bible class, this is a topic I feel like I need to be the one in the seat taking notes because I, I know I don't have it figured out. And um, ironically, Josh is away this weekend and two of the hardest topics to, to speak on are, are both mine. So I'm going to do my best. Uh, I will mention that, um, that uh, as far as marriage goes, we would be wise as to focus more on what God says about marriage than what anybody thinks about marriage. And that's the plan for today is not to tell you what I think about marriage, but what God says in His Word. And certainly we can do that together. I don't know about you, but um, if anybody here has been raised by their grandparents or even maybe your parents, but if you were raised by a family where a mother or grandmother refused to throw away uh, plasticware or dishware that were not, that were plastic. Did anybody grow up with parents or grandparents, especially the ladies, you use the Ziploc bag, you're about to throw it in the trash, you got your hand slapped because mom and grandma's going to wash that and use it again. Even foil. My grandma reuses foil. Um, and, uh, and to this day, you can't throw it away in her house. Um, plastic forks and spoons and, and styrofoam plates, they are reused. Does anybody grow up with that? Okay, it wasn't just me. That's, that's uh, comforting to me. I also, I personally did not hear this, nor I don't think it was me in them, but I hear of a time in our history when, when there were cloth diapers. I've never seen them. I don't think I want to see cloth diapers, but what I'm told, Jeanette, is cloth diapers were used for multiple children in families. And then they were not done being used. I hear after the children grew out of them, they were then used as cleaning rags until the kids were finally potty trained. Some of you may remember them. I asked uh, uh, some of my, uh, my uncles and aunts if they were in cloth diapers. They didn't say yes or no because I think they were, they were maybe a little afraid of what that meant for their age and they didn't answer that question. But our elders lived in a time in a place that taught them, jokes aside, it taught them to get the most out of everything. Is that not true? It taught them to take nothing for granted. I'm going to use what I can until this thing no longer functions. But oh, how things have changed. What about today? Today we kind of live in this throwaway society, do we not? So many things are disposable, dishes and diapers, cameras and contact lenses, razors, water bottles. The other day, Josh is cleaning out his office and I go to mine the next day and on my desk is a VHS tape of some gospel meeting done in the 70s. Um, I don't own a VHS player and I told Josh, I don't know how I'm going to watch this. So I got rid of that. Uh, that was me in my, in my earlier years. But so many things are not used anymore. They're thrown away. Even things that are not necessarily disposable are indeed thrown away. Things like cars. What about cell phones? How many of us flock to the nearest cell phone provider just because there's a new one that came out and we want to upgrade, even though mine's perfectly fine, right? We feel the need 
to discard and upgrade on a regular basis. Well, sadly, this disposable mentality has affected even our relationships. As you're probably aware of, the topic this morning is for the stewardship of marriage. I really believe that this mentality of throwing things away has also tainted our view of marriage. That I can throw away a marriage when it no longer serves me personally the way that I would like. And so our uh, venture this morning is to get back to the Bible. What does God say about His design of marriage? Because when the going gets tough in marriage, the answer is not to just throw your hands up and say, well, I'm done, uh, without ever trying. Whoever you are seeking advice from about a marriage, if they're being guided from the Bible, they will encourage you to fight for your marriage. We need to fight for our marriages, church. We need to help others fight for their marriages. And that's not to say there aren't harms, there aren't disagreements, there aren't challenges, but the marriage, as we read, Ezekiel read in Genesis 2, it is designed by the Creator. And because it's designed by God, it should be meant for us to fight for. God did not design marriage as some momentary dismissive union. No, on the contrary, the marriage between man and wife is meant, is designed for the entirety of life. And I'm not talking about those rare exclusive situations that things happen. I'm talking about generally from the beginning. How did God design marriage because we know that on one side you have God's goodness and awesomeness and and his army that's carrying out those types of plans on the opposition there is the evil one the adversary the Hebrew word for Satan means the adversary the enemy the opponent and he's working against God's plan is he not and so if I could challenge you for one thing this week, could you every single morning as you start your day pray for the marriages of people around you? Pray for the marriages even for your children who are not of age. I heard from, from one wise elder that, uh, that the problem for Christians today as parents is we start praying for their marriages as they're headed to the church building to take care of it. He said the prayer should have started a long time ago for their marriages. The prayer should have started as they were young children, as we were teaching them about God's design for their role in the home, in the family, and we start praying for it there. We ingrain it into ourselves as a family. And Satan would love nothing more than for your marriage or marriage of others to fail. Because if you think about a failed marriage, it does not just affect one spouse or both. It's got a ripple effect, doesn't it? Some of us may have grown up in a, in a household where there was a, a divorce or some type, of, um, some type of, of, of conflict between the two, and it affects people. It affects the children. It hurts people around them. And that's when Satan loves when that happens. And so the damage is far-reaching. We understand the Bible says in John chapter 10 and verse 10 that as opposed to the good shepherd Christ, he says the thief only comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He is on a venture to destroy marriages. And so when we're thinking about the stewardship, how am I supposed to 
handle a marriage, um, I'm just going to focus on two points this morning, just two, that can help us in being a better steward of our marriage. Number one, I must understand the origin and the value of the institution of marriage itself. Do you understand what marriage is? Even if not experientially, do you have a biblical knowledge of what marriage is? I think part of the problem for our 50, almost 50% divorce rate is that people getting into, getting into the marriage don't understand it at all. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. They haven't gone through counseling. They haven't gone through any advisement before they tie the knot, so to say. Um, I don't, uh, I, I don't have a license to counsel, but I do do biblical studies as far as a premarital series goes. Anytime that I uh, marry two people, um, I, I choose uh, to make sure that those two, those two folks, um, we will go through a series of premarital studies. And so it is necessary that we understand some of these things before we get into it. When thinking about the institution of marriage, marriage itself you know, when you think about the home, the church, and the state, the home is the oldest. And since it had its design and origin with God, it's indeed honorable. We remember it, Moses in Genesis tells the story kind of in the, in the area of where we just read. He tells the story in, in the second and third chapters about how he placed Adam in a garden. And he placed Adam in a garden, and he gave Adam a responsibility and that responsibility was to name the animals. Do you remember that? And so these animals came in, and Adam was doing his job. He was naming each one of them. Well, I could not help but think that Adam makes this observation that every animal that passes by that he names has somebody as a mate. And he sees them in twos that they go by, and they go by, and they go by, and he notices himself without one. And so what, is the, what does the Bible say? In verse uh, 23 and 24 of chapter 2, we just read that at, from the rib that the Lord had God, take, that, uh, God taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so you think about Adam as he sees this, this kind of like reminding us of, of middle school. You, you see a woman or you see, man, they're not a boy anymore. And you're just a little curious, you know, and you get those little feelings start to bubble and your stomach starts to hurt. You notice something about them. And I think about Adam as he's seeing God create woman out of his rib and what kind of emotions were going through his mind. Everything, right? We just natives say, I just felt somehow, you know, just I can't explain it. And so as he notices this, he says in verse 23, I love this, Genesis 2 and verse 23, Adam says, at this at last, <laughs> I love that phrase, at last, this is what? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, my my um, uh, nickname for my wife, I just call her rib. I just call her my rib. And and people are like, well, rib, I'm getting it from here. She's taken out a man, you know, but uh, the rib there is what God takes the woman out of and makes her. But God ordains, he institutes the first marriage here. Um, you remember thinking about this institution of marriage. If you read the Gospels, what was the first miracle that Jesus performed? Where was it? 
John chapter 2, he goes to uh, perform his very first miracle at a joyous wedding feast of Cana in Galilee. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4 that let marriage be held in honor above all. He goes on to say, and let the marriage bed remain undefiled. So he says the institution of marriage is not a casual one. When we teach our children and we teach others, when we ourselves are examples of marriage, to demonstrate it's not a casual relationship. This is of utmost importance. And, and since we live in an age where so many people have little or no respect for marriage, matter of fact, the world would seek to redefine marriage. Think about that, the audacity of man to tell God, the creator, what marriage really should have been and is going to continue to be as we make changes is horrible. The biblical definition is where we find ourselves and where we need to make our home. But not only is marriage honorable, marriage is holy, right? Marriage is holy. Holy means to be set apart. You know, I was having a Bible study with uh, one of my relatives, and I was trying to explain to him what holy means. And I said, imagine you're walking down the road, and you look down, and you see um, an eagle feather, what are you going to do with that eagle feather? He's like, well, you don't touch it at first. You've got to do certain things. And he understood this. He's, he's grown up on the res, and he's been taught certain things, same thing as me. But he understood that the eagle feather said, okay, keep walking and think of yourself stumbling across a chicken feather. Which one are you going to handle more carefully? He's like, well, the eagle feather, absolutely, it's different. Anything from God and made by God is, is different. It's, it's, it's exclusive, it's, it's primary, it is valuable, it is holy. And marriage is indeed holy, so holy that Paul would liken the relationship between man and wife to Christ and his church. Put a bookmark there in Genesis chapter 2, we will come back to that. And turn over to another familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22 and 23. If you're marking your Bibles, this is a very important passage in, in Scripture when talking about the marriage itself and roles by, different, by the two members of that marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, this is what Paul says. He says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as so also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And so Paul says, I want you to think of what Christ is relation, relational to the church. How much did Christ love the church? So much that he would die for her. So much that his plan, ultimately, as we see in Revelation, is that the bride comes down, or, or the church comes down, the new Jerusalem, as like a bride, comes before the, the, uh, the husband. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the beauty, the sanctity of marriage is so much that that's the example the Bible uses. It's like Christ in the church. He goes on to say, Therefore, just as the church is subject to, the church, to Christ, so let the wives be their own husband, be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, giving himself up for it, that he might sanctify her and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, and that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without 
blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does for the church. For we are members of his body and flesh of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That sounds familiar, does it not? Guess where, he's, guess where Paul's mind is? Genesis chapter 2. He's going back to the origin. That's God's intention. And so we understand that God had designed it. But to further this point, we go back to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 1. And I want to, what I alluded to in Bible class, I want you to see this connection here. If you're a Bible marker, I want you to look out for this phrase here. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was what, church? He saw that it was good. Drop down to verse uh, 10. The Bible says, God, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was what? It was good. Drop down to verse number uh, 12, uh, 13. Uh, rather, verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Drop down to verse 18, talking about uh, the expanse of the heavens and the light of the earth. It says to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. You're going to see this in verse 21. You're going to see this in verse 25. Every time God taking a step back and as if saying, man, I'm good. But the question is, why do we call it good? Why does the Bible call those creative things good? Because who made it? God did. Something is good because it's designed by God and being carried out as a function to the standards in which God has set up from the beginning. That's why something is good. That's why these things are called good. And notice, he's going to say this again in verse 31, but it says in chapter 2 and verse 18, for the first time in your Bibles, when Moses said something is not good, verse 18 says, then the Lord God said, it is not good. What's not good? That the man should be alone. Interesting. And so we understand that in the New Testament, Paul's going to say that it is your choice to get married. You don't have to. Matter of fact, Paul says, I find it easier to follow God because I'm not having much conflict. Because we all know those who are in marriages, it gets hard to really focus on things because that's of priority for us. And, and Paul says, you don't have to get married, so don't think you have to. But it's interesting that the Bible would say the first time that God said something is not good, it was because man was alone and did not have his Eve. And so, my friends, the only way that anyone can truly reflect and begin to be a good steward of marriage is when you come to the correct understanding of its origin and its purpose. One man, one wife, for life. That's God's standard. Now, what I feel about it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, that's how God designed it. Point number two, 
order to be a good steward of marriage, I must understand that my spouse is God's child. I think this will humble a lot of us because it certainly has for me. You know, my daughters, I've got three of them, as you know, and there's a day coming if God blesses me with that day that I'm going to see a young boy come before me. And I'm not looking forward to that day. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do on that day, especially if it's a serious boy. But I tell you one thing I'm going to tell him is you will treat her right, not only because she's somebody you like, but she is my daughter. You have my daughter in your care, and I'm going to be so stern. And as I look at my wife and as you look at your spouse, it is of utmost importance that we remember that as if we are in, on God's doorstep, about to take his daughter's hand in marriage, he looks out and says to us, that is my daughter. As if God says to the spouse of the wife and says, he is my son. I think so much could be avoided if we just remember that my spouse is a fellow God, a fellow child of God. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, right there in the same passage. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will, notice the future tense reference here. I will make him a helper fit for him. Um, drop down to verse uh, 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and while he uh, took one of his ribs and closed up its place in its flesh. And he out of that rib uh, taken from man made into a woman. Stop there. Adam is asleep. God has done his procedure and created woman, there is Eve, there was a moment, we don't know how long, but think about this, there was a moment of time before God presents her before Adam that Eve belonged to who first? She belonged to God first. That is a very big important, that before my spouse ever became my spouse, they belonged to God first. Even before a, a mother gives birth to a child, that child had already belonged to who first? God, as we study in the Bible class. And so Eve, yet to be created, she is presented, well, she belonged to God and then was presented to Adam. Um, husbands, Eve was God's before she was Adam's, just like your wife was God's before she became yours. And so she's not just the daughter of your father-in-law. She's a daughter of the king. And she should be treated as such. Amen? Amen? That we need to treat our wives as the daughters of the king, our creator. Hold your spot right there and turn to 1 Peter 3, 7. I know we're getting a workout with our fingers this morning, but 1 Peter 3, 7 in the New Testament. And I'm going to continue... On with the husbands in our second point. Because I had to preach this to myself first. Preaching this to myself. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Peter says, In the same way, you husbands must live with your wives. Oh, it would be so nice if he put in a period right there, right? Live with my wife. That's great. That's easy. Done. No, he keeps going and he says, 
with the proper understanding. Oh, Peter, you just had to throw that in there, right? Live with your wife in an understanding way that they are more delicate than you. Be gentle. How would you handle fine china versus a rubber plate? You're going to handle the fine china with care, and that's the point. He goes on to say, treat them with respect. Why? Because they, will, because they also will receive together with you God's gift of life. They are a fellow recipient of God's blessing. Notice what he says if we say, okay, or what, Peter? Well, Evan, do this so that nothing will interfere with your prayers. Interesting. And so a husband who lives according to God's requirements shows respect for his wife, an extension to all women, because they share the same destiny and eternal home with God. Husbands who ignore such a command will find that their prayers are hindered, which means that God will refuse to answer. God does not bless with his favor those who are in positions of authority and abuse those who are under them by mistreating them. He does not bless them. Perhaps this verse, as we see in verse 12, where it says the Lord attends to the prayers of the righteous, maybe it says this is the opposite. To those who will mistreat others that are under their care, he will not listen to their prayers. And so we have a positive encouragement and motivation, and then we have a negative motivation. Do this to be blessed, or if you don't do it, well, I'm not going to hear you out. That's important. Likewise, for the wives, you are also called to live in a manner toward your husbands that pleases God. Now, before, you, um, before we get anywhere, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. And I wanna, want us to focus on one major phrase. I think this is, this is the greater phrase as far as the wife's role, or at least the motivation for her role in the marriage. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands. And it's the opposite of how I feel about 1 Peter 3. And I'll be like, yeah, throw, it, throw a, a period right there. I'm glad he didn't put a period here in Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, those who would say, okay, I'm going to do whatever God says, that may work for them. But others, especially when you have husbands that are not the best, he throws in this clause. And he says what? As is fitting to who? To the Lord. And so just like my motivation as a husband is to do it because my spouse has, an, has the same eternal destiny that I want, the motivation here for wives to submitting or just assuming the role that God has assigned, here lies the ultimate motivation for the love of the wife toward the husband. Submission is a matter of Christian commitment and it comes with salvation so when somebody voluntarily takes a role of submission, really they're doing it because they are wanting to please God, first and foremost. And so, is it, ladies, is it easy to submit to your husbands when they are amazing? They remember the anniversary day. They come back from home and got flowers just because 
They're going to give you a neck and shoulder rub just because, oh, it's easy to submit then. It's easy to love then, right? Well, what about when we've made a mess in the room and throwing all of our dirty laundry in, a, in an area that it does not go? Or what about when we fail to do our dishes at the end of a day where you've already cleaned up and you're in bed? Or what about the times we forget all of the big dates that we're supposed to remember? How easy is it to love us then? It's pretty hard. So what's the motivation then? You love or you assume your role in the marriage because you're trying to please your God. That's the motivation. It's similar to the giving of money, that when we take up a, a, a collection, Paul would say, you're giving, but before you ever take out your wallet, you've already given everything to God. I've already given my entire life to God, and so giving of some papers in my, in my wallet, it, that's already been there. I've already given myself to God. And so this is just part of it. The same thing is true for the marriage, that I've given my life to God. And so when he says to, to, um, to, to partake of that role in the marriage, it's already there because that's my motivation is that I'm trying to please the Lord and not so much as my husband. That's the motivation. And so just like if we continue on in Colossians, he's going to say children are to obey their parents. He's going to say that husbands are to value their wives. He's going to say servants are to obey their masters. But the motivation given for each one is what? To please the Lord. That's why I do what I do. And so when I'm seeking to please the Lord, my relationship will flourish. I wish we had more time um, to delve into this. Those are the two main points that I think that we can use as being a good steward. Number one, do I understand the origin and the purpose of marriage itself? But number two... Do I see my spouse as a fellow child of God? I think those two points will help us navigate through the tough times. As we close, I do want to mention one thing. That when we think about priorities in life, I think the Bible would make it very clear that the priorities is always, number one, God. Number two, my spouse. And number three, my children. Now, I probably will receive some type of lashback because of two and three being in this order. But I believe the greatest blessing for my children when it comes to their marriages is to loving my wife the best that I can. When they see mom and dad having a marriage where they do truly love each other, that's the greatest blessing I can leave for them in their area of marriage when they grow older. When they see mom and dad loving, when he sees dad loving mom as Christ loved the church, then when my daughters grow up, guess what they are probably going to be looking for? A man that does the same. And so when they see mom submitting to the husband, not because he's a good man, not just because he did something good for her, but because she wants to please her God. Imagine the motivation for them when they grow older. And so our marriages are an example for people around us, but especially our home, our children. You know, as we close, I know there's many of us who may be struggling in this area. We may be having some trials and difficulties. Um, there's one thing we can do. We can pray for that. We can pray for people to remember that it is a blessing to have marriage, that it's designed by God and should be carried out in God's design and not our own. But secondly, that... Um, 
we cannot control my spouse. I shouldn't want to control them. I need to focus on self. I need to do what I need to do. And then that would be an example for them. That would be an encouragement to them. And so instead of trying to fix my spouse, I'm trying to fix Evan so that my wife will notice and want to change as well. And so there's a competition, really. Marriage is a competition of who can serve each other better. Oh, you did that for me? Guess what? I'm going to do this for you. Oh, you, oh, you did that for me? I'm going to get this for you. And there's acts of kindness, and there's a competition. And notice when that's the competition, and the competition isn't something bad. That's when the marriage flourishes, when we understand our roles and the designer of marriage. Amen? All right. Well, thank you so much. If there's anybody here that is not a Christian, maybe you've been thinking about it for a bit, please come forward as we stand and we sing. If you are a Christian in need of prayers, we would love to help you out, throw our arms around you, and, uh, and proceed before God on your behalf. If you have any needs, please come as we stand and we sing our final song.